Hello and welcome to the first episode of Me and Mr. 80s. I am the me part, Nick, and with me is Mr. 80s. And my name is Daryl, and for the record, uh, I do not have another brother, Daryl, but thanks for asking. <laughs> haven't heard that one before. <laughs> what a surprise. So the point of this podcast is, well, it's kind of your brainchild, Nick. So is it mainly music or is it a catch-all? I think music is the starting point. You know, we'll go over a topic every week and see how it goes from there. All right. So the topic that we've chosen for the first show is underrated debut albums. Not to be confused with the overrated or, you know, well-rated first albums. The, you know, Guns N' Roses, Welcome to My Night, or uh, Welcome to the Jungle, or the first Cars album. We're talking about things that people may have missed Exactly. In fact, when I think of when I think of the perfect uh, debut album that everybody knows about, I think of "Are You Experienced" by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Excellent the Cars choice. was also going to be on my list. <laughs> GNR is a good one. "License to Ill" by the Beastie Boys. Well, very good. These are debut albums that everybody is uh, pretty familiar with, and those bands have gone on to uh, to greater acclaim. <laughs> so we're trying to find some of the more obscure stuff now. When I was compiling my list. Uh, I discovered, of course, that all of my choices are from the 80s, which made me feel a little old. <laughs> and then I saw your list, and your list is kind of a bit more all over the place. Yes. Oh, yeah. I definitely <laughs> I definitely pulled from every genre I could think of. And I've been racking my brain trying to throw in, like, the token new release or newer release, and I kind of came up empty. So we're just going to kind of let it ride. So where do you want to start? Oh, why don't you give us the first one on your list? Well, the first one on my list is uh, an album that uh, probably is considered part of the hair metal genre, and it is a band called Autograph, and the album is called Sign In, Please. It came out in 1984, and most people probably uh, know it from the big single, uh, Turn Up the Radio. Excellent song. And what I have uh, found about uh, this band is their album was released in a really interesting time in the whole kind of hair metal overtake. Because really, hair metal for me, and tell me if you agree or disagree, pretty much started in 1983 when you had Pyromania, (laughs) uh, Metal Health by Quiet Riot, um, Out of the Cellar by Rat, and uh, Stay Hungry. By Twisted Sister, all kind of coming out close together, and it was still in the early days of MTV. Oh yeah, and uh, that—that's kind of they were the first. I mean, I think what Metal Health was the first. Quote I remember unquote, heavy metal band to go to number one. They were singing. We were all singing that on the bus, and I'm like, wow, that's you know, uh, uh, come on, feel the noise or something. Mm-hmm. It's like. Well, that, that definitely has taken you know, a mainstream approach to metal. <laughs> Actually, yeah, because when we look back on it now, kind of in retrospect, we see that you know, Quiet Ride is probably nobody's first choice for what is truly representative of the metal <laughs> genre. But they weren't no. calling it hair metal yet, right. especially considering the fact that Kevin Dubrow was already going bald. <laughs> the hairless man. <laughs> <laughs> was already going bald at that point. So it didn't really, hair metal did not really get a name, in my opinion, until... Uh, Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi came out in 86. Mm. And 
that's kind of when it started getting the name. And then pretty much every band that came after Bon Jovi was kind of a copy of a copy of a copy of Bon Jovi. You know, you think about Poison and Cinderella and stuff yeah. like that. So in between these two things, with the early gestational period of what would become hair metal, and then when hair metal would basically rule the world until grunge, starting in 86 until the end of the 80s, you've got this album that comes out by uh, a little band called Autograph. And what I have found over the years, I mean, this thing is now over 25 years old, mm-hmm. and I'm not huge into the hair metal genre, but I've got, uh, I've got m- most of the kind of high watermarks of it. I've, I've got all the <laughs> albums that we've already uh, previously discussed, mm-hmm. and I've got, you know, uh, Open Up and Say I by Poison, and oh, yeah. uh, New Jersey, and Slippery When Wet, and all that kind of stuff. And the album that I keep coming back to, the album that I have definitively listened to the most over and over and over again is from, from that genre is Autograph. I wow. keep going back to it. And it's an album that really is uh, better than it has any right to be. <laughs> Especially if all you know about it is turn up the radio. Which I did as I was going through this and listening to that. That was the one I knew, but I'd never really listened to the rest of the album. And when you... Th- I mean, how many bands... especially new bands, have put their all into that one song to get that one radio hit, and then the rest of the album is crap. (laughs) It's total crap. Pretty much a lot of bands in that era. And that's pretty much what you would expect Sign In Please to be. Mm -hmm. But the the creative force behind the band is a fellow named Steve Plunkett, who uh, uh, now is in uh, music management out in Los Angeles and does a lot of... uh, Really? Film and television scoring. Apparently, I, there was a show called Seventh Heaven, which I never watched. On the CW, yeah, with yeah, uh, Jessica Biel, which is what. <laughs> that's why, that's why everyone would know that one. It. Well, that's why everyone would know it. Uh, he composed the theme song to that, <laughs> which I've never heard. I've never heard it either. <laughs> but he's just—he's a great songwriter, and it all kind of comes down to songwriting. And and as as hair metal evolved, you know, past '84 into '86, and then into '88, when basically that was all that was on the radio, uh, it became less and less about uh, the actual structures of the song, and more about you know how high was your hair and how bright was your spandex. And I think that uh, that autograph really was kind of. Um, unfairly lumped in as a hair metal band in retrospect simply because people didn't really know where to put them frankly i think they had a lot more in common with huey lewis in the news which i know probably sounds like an insult but when you think about <laughs> huey lewis in the news you think about what the ultimate bar band i love Huey, <laughs> and i think that autograph could could go into there so if if you if you wanted to kind of explore some tracks to give you a a broader spectrum of of what Autograph is is all about. The lead-off track from the album is a song called Sender to Me, which is a nice uh, mid-tempo rocker. And then one of my favorite songs on the album is a, a sort of a <clears throat> mixture of, of ballad and mid-tempo rocker called uh, Cloud 10. And it's one of, my, one of my favorite songs on the record. And I keep hoping that someday somebody is going to discover that song and cover it, mm. because I really think that it's one of those tunes that could be a hit in any era. It kind of starts off with this cheesy keyboard intro that you probably have to lop off at this point. <laughs> but then after that, it really kind of gets into a nice, you know, riff and a and a nice groove. So it just it it holds up. Well, it, to me, the uh, the album 
sounded like it was a little dated, but it wasn't, you know, there wasn't uh, a lot of things where you go, oh, it's 280s. You know, they definitely have some sort of like a classic type sound to it. And I, I, I noticed first off that I expected them to put uh, Turn Up the Radio as the first song because usually, you know, that's the that's the sign that they've given up on the rest of the album <laughs> when they put the hit sing the single first and so yeah having it come second said to me at least okay they're not you know trying to uh you know give these guys away and uh, it's a good album and they put out uh, two more albums after that and it kind of became the law of diminishing returns mm. i know we've got to move on to other topics but just to kind of close the uh close the loop on that pretty much what happened was uh turn off the radio was a surprise hit and for whatever reason, the label decided not to milk that album. They rushed them back into the studio to record a second album, which I don't know <laughs> why. That's a bad idea. And so the second album was a little half-baked. It's pretty much come to be viewed in retrospect as an album of demos that could have used a little bit more time in the oven. That one's called uh, That's the Stuff. Were they writing their own stuff? They were. I think Plunkett wrote pretty much all the stuff on his own and if he didn't write it all on his own i'm pretty sure he brought in like the gestational ideas and the rest of the band kind of it's not like they were it's not like they rushed out there used somebody else's songs to put out a second album they were just still using their own stuff they were trying to write while they were on tour oh yeah that never works supporting the first (laughs) record and then the last one was called loud and clear and by then it came out in 87 i think hair metal was pretty much firmly ensconced and unfortunately, that record pretty much sounds... I mean, it could have been a Dokken album. It sounds like <laughs> every other hair metal album. But sign in, please. Look it up. Uh, my, definitely my first pick for uh, one of the most underrated debut albums of all time. Have they ever reunited for any like live gigs or anything? Because <sighs> obviously guys, he still must, still must be doing music. So One of the guys has died. The keyboard player, Mark Isham, has uh, passed away. And Plunkett... Um, he did that thing where he reunited the band with all new members. <laughs> and they put out a record called Buzz. Uh, it came out in the early 2000s, but it was only <laughs> released in Europe. If you want to get a copy Good uh, luck. here in North America, you've got to pay like 25 bucks for it. And I'm an autograph fan, but maybe if it was the full band, but if, yeah, no. <laughs> well, you have another uh, one for this genre that might be... Uh, Enough's enough. Yeah. They might go along with this. Um, all right. Well, you want to keep it on me? Um, enough's yeah. Enough is a band that also got lumped into hair metal, I think, just because of the way they looked. Wouldn't you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Even the uh, review on Spotify said that these guys are more pop, but they just sort of got lumped into it, you know, because of looks and the time they came out and stuff. And they, they were a group that had been together for a while. Apparently they formed in the mid-80s, but their debut album, which was self-titled, Enough's Enough, uh, didn't come out until 89, actually late 89, so it was almost the, the turn of the decade when it came out. Their big hit was Fly High Michelle. That's one that, that people might remember, and it was, I would say, more ballady. I mean, it, it had some punch to it, but it was, it was more, more ballady than your typical kind of rock band record when they came out pretty much they were always described as the beatles meets cheap trick with a little bit of psychedelia thrown in i can tell you right now the only component of psychedelia in this band is the fact that there was a peace sign on the album cover (laughs) that always baffled me yeah 
Well, they they were they. I, I don't remember much of what they looked like, but I remember day glow colors. So yes, lots of day. I, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, then maybe you know. And the you teased know. hair. Yeah. And the but uh, I, Beatles makes cheap trick is I'd say a good representation what of what they're trying to go for. What I've learned is anytime any critic says that they're Beatlesque, all they mean is that the songs are catchy. Yeah. That's pretty much all it's <laughs> turned into now. Cheap Trick I can sort of see, but honestly they were a lot more melodic than Cheap Trick. I've never been a big fan of Cheap Trick. So a lot yeah. of what people know about Cheap Trick is their radio hits, which had a lot more melody, but uh, Rick Nielsen, the guitar player, was really the driving force behind that band, and a lot of their songs were almost uh, almost punky. Hmm. And it was crazy for a kind of Jurassic Rock major label band to have that kind of a punk edge. Um, but yeah, Cheap Trick is probably probably a, a closer. And there, there's enough's enough is just a hard the hard group to categorize. I mean, one of the songs on the uh, on the record is called uh, "I Could Never Live Without You," and it's a straight up ballad. It sounds like Brian Adams. <laughs> I mean, it sounds exactly like Brian Adams. Oh, uh, that's. And then there's another track on it uh, called "In the Groove," which is based on this. Uh, Really thick bass line. They said that they wrote it so that strippers could have something to dance to. <laughs> it sounds like poison. It sounds like flesh and blood era poison. Poison. Mm. Um, so I guess as I'm describing them, yeah, they're a little bit derivative. Uh, and well. but this this album, uh, they'd been together long enough that when they made that record, they described it as their version of Enough's Enough's greatest hits. Even though they didn't have any hits up <laughs> at that point, it was just kind of the the high points of their live show. So they'd been, what, like doing the Sunset Strip uh, before that or something? That's a good question. I honestly don't know if they were a California... I mean, they had to have gone to California at some point. Cause well, they seem to have the look for it, but... <clears throat> and this was back in the day when you pretty much had to go out to L.A. if you wanted to get, wanted to get signed. Back when being signed meant something. Meant something. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's ten songs. A solid rock and roll album. Uh, melodic, more cheap trick than hair metal, I would definitely say. Really avoided a lot of the you know, kind of hair metal tropes. <laughs> and they're a band that... But they didn't get much airplay, though. Fly High Michelle, yeah, I mean, that, was, that was pretty much it. I did not know that song until you played it for me. Um, and so it was never on any radio station you know, that I recognized. And I was listening to all sorts of radi- radio in the uh, mid and late 80s. So I was surprised that I hadn't heard that one. They got a fair amount of MTV play. That song was that song was on MTV uh, pretty much at the same time that MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This oh, well. was big. So th- that gives people kind of an idea of the era that we're talking about here. That came right before the end. You know, if you, you get lumped in with hair, hair metal just in time for it to die just in time for by it. the hands of Kurt exa- Cobain. That, that is exactly what happened to them. I mean, they've released 10 albums. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. If you could see the look that Nick just gave me, <laughs> he's aghast. Wow. They, they've released 10 albums in different incarnations, but it's always been, because they're a four-piece, and uh, Chip's Enough, I'm sure not his real name. God, I hope not. <laughs> the guitar player. Uh, it's always been him and then Donnie V, the lead singer, and then kind of a rotating cast of, of rhythm section. Hmm. So... How do you know how recently they put out their last album? Uh, I want to say 2006, 2007. So not that long wow. ago. They're still out there. They're still working. Away. 
and it's not just a you know a, a poison esque let's just you know redo our songs for the twelve thousandth time. Well, they, they of course had to do the acoustic disc. Oh yeah, well. they had to do the album with the acoustic versions of their past songs. But no, they're putting out new stuff, and they're one of those bands that there's like pockets of countries around the world. They're probably big in Japan. <laughs> Because <laughs> isn't everybody big in Japan? Well, I know I would be. <laughs> so, hmm. yeah, that's that's enough's enough. Very cool. So, what do you got? All right. Well, I, I think my first choice would be the first album from Motion City Soundtrack called "I Am the Movie." Uh, I actually. Didn't know that I knew the band when I uh, listened to the album. I was uh, I had a subscription to eMusic, and this was back when you you kind of like paid like ten dollars a month, and you got to download like you know twenty songs a month, and so I would just go through there and download certain songs, and I, I found uh, songs from this band. Uh, their second album had already come out called "Commit This to Memory," and. Uh, I went through and I was listening to the songs and I'm like, boy, that sounds really familiar. And it was one of the songs on uh, Burnout Revenge, a uh, video game. And it's it was called uh, My Favorite Accident. And they're just a, they're supposed to be emo, which I'm not sure I really understand what that means <laughs> because they, 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 they don't really, It basically you know, means punk with eyeliner. Yeah, I guess he has kind of a uh, kind of a high voiced thing, and you know, but they're they're rocking, they're you know, and I, I guess I like emotion in a band, but I don't know that they're any more emotional than any other band. <laughs> you know, it's just it's not like they're you know crying on the record or something. <laughs> so, it's Dan Hill, oh Dan Hill with loud electric guitars. <laughs> Sometimes when we touch. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's definitely not them. <laughs> so what do you think it sounds like? Uh, I would say that it sounds kind of like a um, a modern day Husker Du. Mm. With, you know, a little bit more uh, pop and a little less punk. You do know that Husker Du is one of the... One of the first emo bands. So, really, I didn't know that they were emo put out. Had a name. Husker Du and the Descendants were probably the two. I didn't know they were considered emo. Well, well, they weren't. But that, but I mean, well, they, I mean, they, 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 they would they def- be considered now, in the, you know, in retrospect. Because when you think about it, uh, I know we're getting kind of off on a on a tangent here, but uh, punk of that of that SST era, that that early '80s era, was pretty much all about either uh, I hate my parents. Or I hate society, <laughs> and Husker Du is a lot more about my romantic life is in turmoil, yeah. and it's those lyrical themes that kind of gave emo its its name later on. Hmm. Well, I guess that fits then because yeah, I love Husker Du, and they uh, they definitely have a, a a similar yeah. I guess you know they they do have you know the the lyrical content is more, you know, th- I think that's really, you know, where Commit This to Memory, the next album, is why it's really their best one ever. Because it was definitely, there, there had to have been some sort of breakup going on during the second album. And as we all know, 
breakups make awesome albums. They do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just awesome. So, but this one is definitely uh, where they're finding their sound, and I think they'll uh, they'll pull it all together in the next one. But you really get a sense with like uh, with my favorite accident with. Uh, I should look up the titles of the names because <laughs> I, I suck at you know remembering the titles when track I track uh, seven. <laughs> yeah, well, then, you know that's one of the, one of the great things I would say about some albums like this is that I just play the whole album through. I'm yeah. not really playing one song off of it, and I think we've you know thanks to things like iTunes and stuff, we always have a, a one track mentality where I like this track from that album, this track from that album, and they don't just play full albums and. So is there is there songwriting uh, reminiscent of Husker Du era Bob Mould in that they'll they'll do a pop song and then a thrash song and then a pop song and a thrash song because it really wasn't in my mind until <laughs> Sugar that he kind of combined the both. Well, and I think that had more to do with the fact that he was having to share albums with uh, with Grant Hart. With Grant Hart, and so you know he couldn't he couldn't do you know two or three songs of his because he had to kind of do one of his and then one of you know, hard and one of his, and, and uh, I think once he, you know, once he went to Sugar and did his own thing, then he could start doing all those in a row. And for people who are not familiar with Husker Du, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Grant Hart was the drummer, right? And Bob was the Bob. Bob was the main creative force and the guitar player. Yes, but, but Grant, player. Grant Hart. I think it's probably one of those situations where they formed the band together. And then it became painfully obvious that Bob was the more talented of the two, <laughs> but nobody wanted to say it, so they let Grant write a couple songs every album. Is that pretty much? I, I think it was one of those. It's one of those uh, things that you always have the turmoil makes a great album or a great band, and I think the fact that they kept trying to, both of them thought that they were like the the head of the band. It seemed like, so they both kept fighting for you know this is my songs, this is my album, this is my. And I thought that, you know, as, as you know, the, their first album was so heavily, you know, loud, nasty punk. And by Warehouse, the last album, you know, they, they jump to Warner Brothers and make a pop album. And, you know, I think the, I, I never knew who was, I think Bob was the one that kept trying to make them more melodic. And you could sort of hear that Hart was the one that kept trying to keep them angular. You know, so like, you know, they that that worked. You know, for a couple of you know, for a few albums, but eventually, I don't know what the heck. Hard. He actually, I he had an album out by himself that I don't remember what it sounded like, but I remember I didn't really like it. <laughs> and then further complicating matters, the two of those guys may or may not have been in a romantic relationship. Hmm, that's true. I I know that Bob Mould is gay, um, but I never really knew much. It seems like he never really talked about that that's aspect. One those, that's one of those stories that's been floating around out there in the... That they were lovers? Yes. Wow, did not know that. So I might be slandering Grant Hart and Bob Mould right now, but that's, that's <laughs> what I've heard. Well, you know, and um, I remember... Uh, well, this is going to take this on a whole different tangent. Yeah, confusing them with Boy George and John Moss. From That's exactly Club. where I was going to go. Is that <laughs> when I when I was working backstage at Blossom, uh, an amphitheater near us, and uh, the they reunited uh, 
for some 80s concert there. Oh, Culture Club? Yes, Culture Club. That was when they toured with uh, the Human League and Howard Jones, probably. Yeah, you, I think you guys went yeah, to see that. that show. And all of the other band members had to be picked up at the hotel separately from Boy George. And, you know, someone I remember in the stage was because, you know, the, because Boy George and who was the other one? He John was Moss. Who's not married with children. Yeah, didn't want to be, <laughs> didn't want to hang out together anymore. And, you know, who knows if that was because of the, they just didn't get along, or if it was because of the rumors of gay sex, or who knows. Well, that one was not a rumor. That's confirmed. They've both confirmed. They, they have confirmed it. Yes, okay. they, were, they were in a relationship during that, during that group. But uh, John Moss was uh, was basically uh, let's see how I want to put this. Um, oh, what was the the woman that uh, the woman that turned gay for Ellen then went back? Uh, Portia de Rossi. No, no uh, Anne Hache. Yes. Okay. John Moss was Boy George's Anne Hache. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you found your song title? Yes, I did. Uh, the 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 big single, if there was a big single on this, was called "The Future Freaks Me Out," and my favorite accident was the one that was on the uh, soundtrack for "Burnout Revenge." They also had songs uh, "Capital H" and uh, "AOK," which were also excellent choices. And the group is called Motion City Soundtrack, and I have no idea what that uh, are they title from, means. Are they from Detroit? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> did it have some kind of play on Motor City? I would, yeah. I, 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 when I first heard it, I thought it, they were the Motor City soundtrack, and I was like, "That's an odd, but no, Motion City." The MC Five would be pissed off about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're very good. They're very, you know, definitely uh, a great punk pop. If you want to go emo, punk pop emo band to listen to. All right. Where to next? Uh, you want to do another one of yours? Uh, okay. The problem is I'm getting ready. Well, I can either enter into the power pop. I've got two that kind of fall into power pop, or I can do the one that is not really in. Because basically, if you want to keep it by genre, if I start now and do the power pop, then I've got two. Or we can. Well, I've got a. I've got a power pop. And yeah. Yeah, you can go then. Go power pop. Yeah. All right. Uh, so. Uh, there is a group called The Records, which you can tell this is a band that did not anticipate Google. <laughs> because try finding a band called The Records on Google. Any it's sort of like trying to find the band ABC <laughs> on Google. Uh, the Records were a, a band out of England uh, that released their debut album, Shades in Bed, in 1978 and as a catch-all i'm calling them a power pop band and yeah. as this podcast grows and evolves i will probably end up talking about power pop a lot because it is one of the hardest to understand subgenres <laughs> of rock music and i certainly don't claim to be an expert that's why i say that's where i categorize them <laughs> Uh, to give listeners a reference for what is commonly called power pop, I would say the Knack is probably yeah. the best known band that gets put into that. Uh, one of the best descriptions I ever heard of power pop was Van Halen plays the Raspberries songbook. 
That's a good. That's a good analogy. So, in other words, you've got sweet melodies with blazing guitars. Um, so you could call it guitar pop. Anyway, mm-hmm. kind of getting off on a rant here. But the records, uh, I don't know what. If for the longest time I thought that what had happened was the knack got signed and had a number one hit, and then much like what would happen with grunge 20 years later, uh, every label ran out trying to sign... Find their own knack. ...a sound-alike band. But when I look at it, the dates don't really match up, because if I'm not mistaken, My Sharona didn't actually uh, hit number one until 79. Hmm. So the rush to find the next knack probably would not have come until after that, whereas the record's... Uh, first album came out in '78, so I don't, uh, hmm. I don't know where they came from, and I don't know how they got signed. They were signed to a major label. I think they were signed to Virgin over in Europe, and that was back when Virgin did not have a North American presence. And I honestly can't even remember what label had them over here in North America. So anyway, guitar pop, um, I would say very Beatlesque, mm-hmm. uh, and just like the critics, what I mean is catchy. Uh, harmonies. Uh, there is some. There is a little bit, maybe, of cars in there because when you think about the cars of the same era, uh, they definitely had the electric guitars cranked up. Mm-hmm. And there are some songs on this album, the records "Shades in Bed," that are very that are very crunchy, but with the guitars. But then there are some other tracks that are uh, uh, much sweeter much more reliant on the harmonies and really get very very close to literally sounding like the beatles (laughs) um but it's it's 10 songs and there's really not a bad song on the album if you're a fan of melody which i am i love melody and music that's uh, pretty much the the main thing that i that i always go for it's just such a such a melodic album so well it's very catchy and it kind of came out of, of left field how i discovered them was uh their debut album shades in bed got released here in the united states and as they always seemed to do from the 60s into the 70s when an album came out in the uk and the big single was a song called starry eyes uh, when, an, when a band would hit big in Europe and they would bring them to North America, they would reshuffle the song order and give it a new album cover. I don't know why that is. <laughs> yeah, no idea. So when it came out over here, it was actually just called The Records. And <laughs> in the mid-'80s, uh, Camelot Music, a national record store chain that is no longer in existence, uh, had cutout bins in every store and i'm not even sure the youngsters today know what a cutout is god they probably don't but gary basically a a cutout is when a record label produces way more uh copies of an album than they can possibly sell they would run it through a machine that cut a notch out of the corner so that you would know that it was not uh decent new product anymore Mm -hmm. and they would sell those records at a reduced rate to independent dealers then the independent dealers would turn around and sell them to record stores at a reduced rate and and basically what would happen is record stores would have a special section a special bin 
full of these cutout albums. And back when LPs were retailing for seven, eight bucks, these things were going for anywhere from a dollar to four dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much like aftermarket music, but it's still sealed and shrink wrapped. No, it's yeah. not used. Yeah, and it's kind of like what a used market would be now, yeah. but it was still brand new. There were so many copies of the record's debut album flooding the cutout market that back when a typical cutout album cost a buck, I shit you not, they were selling hundreds of these things for 25 cents a piece. Oh, that's terrible. And the only reason I bought it (laughs) is because I got so sick of seeing it (laughs) when I would go shopping for cutouts. I'd be like, God damn it, there's the records again. Who are who are who is this band? And the album art that that the US label gave them, it was like this uh imagine like one of the girls from the Robert Palmer videos, but with blonde hair but still slicked back, wearing a black leather trench coat and sunglasses, and you're looking at her through the big picture window like you're standing on the street looking at her sh- shopping for records in a record store. It looked very new wave. Hmm. Yeah. It looked like comically a new wave. And so actually, I didn't want to buy the record because I thought to myself, this band, they're going to sound like every new wave band that couldn't get on MTV. It's just going to be a travesty. (laughs) It's going to be. It's our new wave band that couldn't get on MTV. It's going to be ear rape. (laughs) 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 But I. But I got so tired of seeing it that I that I finally am like, okay, twenty five cents, I'll buy one just to get it off the market. And uh, one of the greatest surprises of my life <laughs> <laughs> when I put that thing on, and I was like, this is freaking awesome! <laughs> wow, that worked out well. And so it kind of began a a lifelong love affair with that group and they're one of those bands that it's hard to find out information about them not only because it's so freaking hard to google search them because of their <laughs> stupid general name um but they weren't really big here uh like i said people that if people know about them they generally bring up a song called starry eyes which always confuses me because when i think of starry eyes i think of the song of the same title that's on motley Crue's first album which actually should probably be in this conversation but that's another story mm-hmm. um but it's just, uh, look that one up, and if you hear it and you like it, then you'll probably like the rest of the stuff. And they ended up putting out a total of three albums, and pretty much every album that they put out, they had significant personnel changes. Uh, but they always kind of retained their... Like, if you listen, uh, I noticed uh, uh, Nick had downloaded their 20-track uh, Best Of and was listening to it. The songs on that are pulled from all three of those records. And so even mm-hmm. though they had uh, massive turnover with every album... They maintain kind of that consistent core of, of catchy. They got a little bit more new wave. They, they only were active from 78 to 82. Oh. And as they pushed deeper into the 80s, they got a little bit, little bit more new wave sounding. But uh, they're still, they're one of, those, one of those bands that even though they're a product of their time, that time, late 70s into early 80s, is looked back at uh, so fondly that I think when you listen to them now, even though maybe they would sound dated, they don't sound dated the way, say, a Rick Astley song does. Yeah, they don't sound... I, again, this was another one of those... I knew you'd you know, talked about them before, but I hadn't really listened to them, so when I heard the album, and uh, they have they have a classic 80s sound, but not a bad, you know, uh, 
actually, I shouldn't say that. They, they have an 80s sound, but it's not the, um, I don't know. When I, when I think classic 80s sound, I, I think more like Madonna and Hall and & Oates. And right. so this definitely has like a sound of like an 80s, you know, late 70s, early 80s, but it's a good, you know, um, really catchy guitar pop. And it's it's so catchy and clever that I'm stunned that they never got any, you know, that they ended up being cut out Ben Fodder. Because you're like, wow, this should have been big. <laughs> that is exactly where I'm at. I, I, on my personal Facebook page, every now and again, I'll, I'll throw a song out there. And I, I'm always calling them, you know, one of the most overlooked bands in, in rock Definitely. and roll history. And I, I'm, I don't throw that around lightly. I mean, there's a lot of bands that I like that nobody else likes, but I understand why. I understand why they maybe appeal mm. to people without other people, maybe don't have a broad appeal. And this, this band, I absolutely positively cannot fathom why they did not rule the world for at least a few years. Or at least get into the conversation. I mean, you know, they're just non-existent. Yeah. And boy, they should have, they should have had, you know, I'd love to know, you know, like, did their album not, you know, did they not get pushed by the uh, label or did they, you know, were they big somewhere else, but they never showed up, you know, in America or... And like I, I said, know. because it's so hard to find out any information about him, you can't really even find out if there's any smoking gun like, did somebody have a big drug problem? Oh, yeah. Was somebody a big asshole and the promoters didn't <laughs> like him? You know, there's just, there's so little information out there about them. <laughs> and interesting, as a side note, I will we'll move on after this, but their second album, you know, I mentioned the personnel changes. Mm-hmm. Um, for one album only, a member of the records was the fantastic underrated singer-songwriter Jude Cole. Oh, Really? So we'll just kind of let that hang there because I'm sure that at some point I'm going to be talking about Jude Cole. <laughs> well, let me, I, I just wanted to say that uh, I listened to them on Spotify, and although they are not a sponsor of this program, I think that you know, if you uh, I, all the, the albums that you know that we've been we're, we've been talking so far, and pretty much everything else I can find, you, you know, if you want to listen to all these bands, it's like five bucks or ten bucks a month, and you have access to just about every album on the planet. So if you wanted to, you know, find out all these things, go there, spend a couple bucks, and listen to a whole bunch of really good albums. And I'm also going to be, uh, when we get to the self, the blatant self-promotion portion of the program, I'll be talking more about the blog that people can go to. And my hope is to uh, put YouTube links uh, to as many songs as I can find that we've talked about on that blog. Although I noticed that I've run into, even though YouTube has everything, every now and again I go to look for a song and I can't find it. So <laughs> if I can't find it, it won't be there, but I'll look. What if you can't find it on YouTube? <laughs> I'm stunned. There's a song by Joe Jackson called Human Touch that I've been wanting to put on my Facebook page for like two years and it's never up there. Hmm. Same thing, there's a song by the records called Another Star. I wanted to post it the other day. Couldn't find it. So, Well, you said you had a power pop group. Who you got? Um, uh, they're called Letters to Cleo. Do you remember them? Is this Juliana Hatfield? No, uh, I can't remember the girl's name, but they... This isn't the belly chick, is it? No, no, not her either. Strike two, I'm out. (laughs) They, they had, um, a, um, actually, if someone would know them, they're probably not going to know them for this. They're actually going to know them for the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack. Which there was a movie which I think is actually quite good for its take on um, pop culture in America, where they redid, I think it was like a 70s cartoon, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the the uh, the movie had the girl had a girl band that becomes famous, and the girls in the movie aren't actually playing. It's actually uh, this girl, and I just lost her name again. But uh, it's she. She's the front person for a band that has that that plays the songs, and the album itself is very good. But this was. So the first this, album. this woman who was in Letters to Cleo also contributed to the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack, but Letters to Cleo did not. Right. I th- well, I think I think like two members of the band were in that, but it was this is a situation it wasn't the where she is Letters to Cleo the way that Trent Reznor <laughs> is Nine Inch Nails. Or? Well, I'm not sure that they ever did anything more than two albums, and they had one song that became a radio single. Um, this would have been. Um, Wow, 94, 95, and they had a song, and I'd seen them in a magazine that was talking about um, up-and-coming bands, and uh, they just sounded good, and I was working at a music store, so I ordered their album for the store, and when it came in, they were on some like tiny little independent label, and then that song became huge, and they, like... I don't know, they got called up to the big leagues and they re-released the album on a major label. So it was the same album, only they changed the uh, the single that became a huge hit, which I will look up because <laughs> I'm struggling to remember the name of it again. I suck at remembering names. We probably should have mentioned at the outset that, uh, yes, it would be cool as two guys sit around talking about songs you've never heard if we played you a little bit of them, but we really mm-hmm. don't feel like getting cease and desist letters from any Los Angeles lawyers, so we're just not going to do that. Yeah. I would love to do that, but, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I brought up Spotify. You know, if you want to join in the listening party, you can listen to it while we're talking about it, (laughs) rather than having us play it and get sued. Do it your own damn self. (laughs) Um, Or contribute to our legal defense fund. (laughs) There you go. Well, they have a really, they had a very catchy... um, power pop type song, you know, or a sound, and they were, um, they, they had a lot of, uh, they were better than just that one single. How about, let's say that. Okay. And sort of like the, it's their turn up the radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they were known for that one song and I think people, you know, what what the Didn't year? So Josie and the Pussycats came out what like in the later mid nineties? Like was that like a ninety seven kind of a thing? I think it was maybe ninety six, ninety seven. Were you still? Were you at the Blockbuster Music when that came out? Um, I was at Le- when the Lars Cleo album came out, but not when they. I think not when they did the Josie and the Pussycats. Okay. As I get older, that's how I keep track of the years that things happen. If I can remember <laughs> where I was working when it happened, I can generally kind of ballpark the year. Ooh, they had a total of three albums. And <laughs> and I can't get the recent album because they re-released uh, Aurora Gorealis, which was their first album in 2008, so that's all I get to see. But their big single was Wait Here and Now. That's what it was. Not the Luther Vandross classic. (laughs) I don't think so, no. Um, But there was a uh, a point in that song where um, she does a very fast-talking 
I, I can't sing the like it. It's a very catchy, upbeat song to begin with, but then she kind of does this kind of. I, I guess I, for lack of a better reason, I would call it a rap. Mm-hmm. And in the independent version of the song, they it was faster and less intelligible. So when they re-released the entire album on a major label, they made her re-record that and slow it down so that people could understand it and sing along to it, which I always thought was interesting. They didn't change anything else on the album because I had both of them and I listened to both of them. That was all they changed. Maybe they were trying to avoid a Louis Louie controversy. <laughs> that could be. You never know. Uh, Big Star, the first song of the album, is a, a good uh, catchy. A lot of these songs are very upbeat and catchy. I would say, you know, if they were, they're kind of like, like a punky bangles, catchy, melodic, but much, but at a faster tempo. Which a lot of people say that, um, the bangles were a punky bangles before they released different light. I don't know how true that is, but. Well, I always heard that, you know, the go-go's were more punky, you know, before they became eighties pop stars. I, I think but that's probably true because you know, Beauty and the Beat, um, even though I know it just celebrated its 30th anniversary, uh, I know it's a classic. Uh, I never great really got, album. I never got into that record more more than the singles because they they did they had a lot more of a not only punk but uh, I don't want to say rockabilly but <laughs> but you know just that that kind of really stripped down old time rock and roll kind of a sound to them. Oh, I I love that first album of theirs, but yeah, the singles were good, but they they had other good songs from that album. So we wrapped up letters to Cleo. Yeah, that was I, that was pretty much you know, they're a good you know catchy punky poppy band. Uh, not completely unprofessionally because uh, Nick actually can see all the commands and our stuff, and I can't. How are we doing on time? Uh, we're hitting forty five minutes. All right, that's not bad. Yeah. Um. So, staying in the power pop realm, even though we can't really define power pop, do some independent <laughs> research, you'll see how freaking confusing it is. Although a lot of people do say that the very first power pop song, if you don't, a lot of people say the very first power pop song was something by the Beatles. Mm. Okay? You know? Yeah. Because definitely power pop has got a lot of roots in early Beatles, like pre-psychedelic Beatles. But, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a big Todd Rundgren fan, but a lot of people say that the quintessential power pop song is a song from the Something Anything album, which is the same album that Hello, It's Me is off of. And this particular song is called Couldn't I Just Tell You. <laughs> so if anybody wants to YouTube Couldn't I Just Tell You by Todd Rundgren, that will be a fairly decent representative <clears throat> of a genre called power pop that is very hard to find a representative of since there are so many definitions of it another group called the raspberries with eric carmen uh what was their big single <sighs> overnight sensation hit single that was one of them um they had another one called tonight hmm. i got their best of because i kept hearing about them mm-hmm. so much and i don't know they're a little too beatly for my taste they got some, they, you know, like Overnight Sensation Tonight, they're good, they're good songs. Uh, Motley Crue actually recorded a cover of Tonight when they were recording Too Fast for Love, and then they put it out on the, the reissues that came I out remember tonight, you playing that. They do a pretty cool version of, of that song. Um, but anyway, staying with the power pop realm, uh, another band that I would kind of put there with the records that I just really am baffled 
why they didn't hit it bigger. And, and really, this is kind of true of a lot of power pop bands because <clears throat> power pop is so freaking catchy, but it seems like no bands that are truly power pop ever catch on, which I can't figure <laughs> out why songs that are specifically written to be catchy and be appealing to the ear, why they don't seem to set the world on fire. They only seem to set the world of a select few geeks, <laughs> music geeks, on fire. Anyway, this group is called The Pursuit of Happiness, mm-hmm. which, of course, is uh, a phrase drawn from a very important United States document, but this group was uh, from our neighbors to the north, from Canada. And they were led by a fellow named Mo Berg, who... Uh, has a very stupid sounding name <laughs> and who sings a little bit like Weird Al Yankovic. Hmm. Everybody okay. always says that he sounds like Weird Al Yankovic. Their debut album, Love Junk, came out in uh, 1988. And their big hit, if you want to call it that, it was, it was pretty popular on the radio for about five minutes, uh, was called I'm an Adult Now. Hmm. Blank look. From oh, okay, okay. Uh, I was I was trying to remember. I was listening to it earlier. So, and uh, it, that song is not really representative of what they sounded like, but uh, it's it's close enough. It's not like it's radically different. Anyway, uh, Love Junk is thirteen songs, and uh, every single song is about Moberg's trouble with women. <laughs> um, yes. So in that respect, he's got a little bit of emo there. And it was actually Rolling Stone's review of this album where that phrase about uh, Van Halen plays the Raspberry songbook came from. And it's really kind of a perfect definition. Uh, Pretty much what it means is that it's very, very guitar-oriented, but also very poppy and very catchy. And the album is just stacked from top to bottom. it's it's from such a wronged male perspective that I don't know if women would get a lot out of it. I, I don't know if maybe it's sort of a guy's album. Uh, so maybe that's why I love it so. Uh, and also the time that it came out, you know, I was in my late teens and kind of ready for that kind of a thing. I, I was kind of expecting you, <laughs> that's where, because uh, to me it was a little too angsty for me. <laughs> I mean, hearing this now, I was, I'm listening to lyrics going, I'm like, boy, if you were a teenage boy, this thing would be, you know dead center in your sweet spot but listening to it now i'm just sort of like a little too much a little too much but uh just great um and were the records when we were talking about the records how they kind of mixed crunchy guitars with also songs that were a little bit sweeter sounding um the guitars are cranked to 11 on every track on uh pursuit of happiness love junk very good sound uh it was produced by todd rundgren Mm -hmm. interesting um didn't he do one of the Cars albums too? No, remember he joined the Cars after. Richard well, Casey. yes, but I, I thought that was—I was actually thought that's why he did that was that they he produced one of their albums and they'd worked with him and they thought. No, I think uh, I know Roy Thomas Baker produced a lot of the early stuff, and then I think Mutt Lang produced Heartbeat City. Wow, I'm surprised I didn't like anything off of that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that uh, I don't think Todd ever produced anything hmm. for them. I'm trying to think if there's any band even close. Um, so how do you make that call? I mean, how do you go, Rick can't make it, let's call Todd Rundgren. Yeah, I really have no idea how that <laughs> happened. 
Uh, so let's see some some tracks from Pursuit of Happiness. There's a song called "Killed by Love." You want to talk about angst? <laughs> Killed by Love is a good one to check out. Um, Hard to laugh. That's one to check out. And then if you want to hear them at their uh, poppiest, poppiest. Um, well, I forget the title of that one, so never mind. Anyway, <laughs> check out Pursuit of Happiness, Love Junk. One of the most underrated debut albums of all time. Excellent. What else you got? Um, how about I can go completely left to center with this one. Women Tisdale, Power Forward. Former basketball player who was a jazz bassist. Yes. He played for the Lakers. And, uh, again, this was when I was working at uh, Blockbuster Music. And someone put on the album, and I was like, wow, that doesn't, it, it, that is not uh, a bad version of new jazz. I mean, to me, a lot of new jazz is a very kind of, you know, sonic wallpaper. and Smooth jazz is what you're talking smooth about. Smooth jazz, yes. Yeah, Sorry. Smooth jazz. And uh, I think we can. We both found things in the you know smooth jazz genre that we like. Oh yeah, that's one of it's one of my favorites now. Cause I'm an old man, <laughs> but there still is that uh, you know like everything is going to be Kenny G or something. And this album is really great. There is soulfulness. There is you know funk. There is you know something that really goes beyond what a lot of, you know, uh, what a lot of what anyone would think is smooth jazz. And for a freaking debut album from a guy who used to play basketball, this thing fucking kills it. I mean, really. And that, that was, Power Forward was his debut, and I think that's the position he played. Yeah. And all of his albums have got basketball-related titles. I think one's called Hang Time, one's probably <laughs> called Slam Dunk, <laughs> one's probably called Bad Foul, I don't know. Um... <laughs> Errant Whistle. Um, and his his early record, uh, maybe it was maybe, was it more bass-focused? Because I hear a lot oh, of yeah, Because he's still recording. And when I'm uh, streaming, either Music Choice at home or when I'm listening to Pandora at work, William Tisdale comes up fairly frequently. I mean, he's, wow, he's, cool. he's big. He's big in the smooth jazz genre. And uh, the bass seems to be very de-emphasized. In his in his newer stuff, which oh, is that's weird, unfortunate. Since, since he is a bass player, well, that, that's one of the things I think is really great about this album is that it is, you know, that that beat, that rhythm of the bass is really featured, which is again something you don't see a lot. It, yeah, I was just playing it again this morning. It is a really good album. That came out in the mid '90s, I think. Right? Oh yeah, that was easily, you know, probably probably '93. And boy, yeah, he so really saying Wayman, not Raymond. Yeah, it's Wayman, W A Y M A N. We didn't turn into Elmer Fudd. <laughs> that's, that's the man's name. And he's probably no relation to Ashley Tisdale. <laughs> for you youngsters out there, <laughs> and the fact that I even know that name, I'm impressed. I'm going We're, to go punch myself pull. in the face now. <laughs> um. As far as tracks, the uh, beginning of the album with like circumstance and passion actually have some sort of like vocals along in there, and as it goes farther into it, it gets more just instrumental and stuff. But are they lyrics or just kind of vocal phrasings? Um, I think like uh, circumstance actually just has a voice that comes in there, and it'll like play something. And it'll just go circumstance, <laughs> <laughs> like the Barry White. 
<laughs> which is cool. But it, yeah, but then like Jazz in You actually has some, you know, uh, he's singing, you know, the Jazz in You. Yeah, just, but uh, that'll be thirty-five dollars. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's he's he's he really, you know, Power Forward is another song on there, and Inside Stuff. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're all, you know, Inside Stuff was like the uh, NBA, right? TV yeah. show and stuff, so yeah, but it's it's really good. Is that the theme for that, or did he just call it that? Oh, I think he just called it that. I, well, actually, you never know. I guess I never really watched it, so. That was a mob Rashad, right? Yes. Oh, God, wow. Whose bitch was he? Was he Jordan's bitch? A mob Rashad? He had a reputation for being somebody's bitch. I would say probably Jordan. Yeah, probably. Everybody was Jordan's <laughs> bitch, so we'll just yeah. say Jordan's bitch. He was also <laughs> definitely Felicia Rashad's bitch. She wore the pants in that relationship. <laughs> she wore the strap on, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, check that one out. Power forward, Wayman Tisdale. What else you got? I only got one more. So. Okay. Well, uh, another one in that actually has some uh, rhythm and beats to it would be Lessis Jackson, "In Search of Manny." Now the this was the group of ladies who was continually called the female Beastie Boys. Yes, which you had brought up earlier with Beastie Boys, licensed ill, as you know, one of the seminal. You know, uh, and I can't even fathom what a female Beastie Boys. I mean, how would you even do that? <laughs> well, so is it a stupid description? In the fact that they're uh, like three white ladies who, you know, do kind of a a rap sing over you know uh, various different melodic rock and uh, hip hop styles. Yes, you know. Uh, and there's three of them, like there were three of the Beastie Boys, and you know I can definitely what see where the parallels. Ad rock. Yeah, I didn't even remember <laughs> that the names of those were, but no. Um, but I'm they, Queen Ad Rock. I'm Michaela D. I think they, to me, they had more of a. Um, I guess I would. I, I don't want to say psychedelic vibe, but uh, maybe something that's a little more. Um, uh, less straight ahead. I mean, they definitely seem to have a few more, maybe a Middle Eastern influence, maybe, you know, psychedelic influence. They just kind of had a few more influences than the Beastie Boys did at the time. Yeah, when you when you played some stuff, I remember you playing me some stuff when they were kind of getting a little bit hot. And, uh, yeah, it didn't really sound like the Beasties to me. I just thought that it was laziness on the critics. Oh, yeah. To, I mean, it's to call just, them that. Yeah, way too lazy. It almost uh, it had kind of a Tina Weymouth, kind of a Tom Tom Club, kind of a kind of a thing going on. I think. Hmm. By that, she, you know, um, genius of love. She's the uh, uh, bass player for Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. That was her side project. I don't really know much about Tom Tom. Uh, Luscious Jackson kind of reminded me a little bit of that because hmm. uh, when you talk about the Middle Eastern influences and whatnot, I mean Tom Tom Club kind of had that throw some crap in a blender and see what comes out <laughs> kind of approach to music. Okay, that's cool. Um, the big hit, you know, for them, Genius of Love. Uh, it had a kind of a chirpy uh, keyboard melody, but then the vocals were uh, speak singing, female, mm. but just this kind of very detached monotone, almost kind of, I guess, maybe pre-ironic. <laughs> pre-ironic. Kind of thing. <laughs> so... Um, the, I think their biggest single probably wasn't on this album called Naked Eye. Uh, I think that was probably at least maybe a top 20 single, 
But for this one, uh, Daughters of the Chaos. What I'll be looking at now? This is In Search of Manny is the one that I'm talking about. In Search of Manny. Correct. Okay. And, yeah. uh, Daughters of the Chaos, uh, Let Yourself Get Down, Keep on Rocking It. All very good songs, but I think Daughters of Chaos is probably the one that if you've heard of anything off that album, you've probably heard that. Did they get any soundtrack work? Were there any movies or anything you can recall that their songs were featured in? That's a good question. I wonder if, um, not that I can think of right offhand, okay. um, but I know that they've they put out, gosh, at least three or four albums, and, and if I, recall, I haven't heard anything from them recently. I, I think that, uh, I mean, I don't think at least one of them I think is still doing something in music. I think she's a lifer. I don't know if if it's gained any. Renowned, but I think she's out there still plugging away. <laughs> yeah, the last thing they had out was a greatest hits album in 2007. Fever in, Fever Out was the uh, was came out in '96, and that had Naked Eye, which was their biggest thing for a single, I think. But you know, they had some. They've had you know what? In Search of Manny came out in '90 '92. Wow, I remember buying that on cassette. <laughs> ah yes those were the days not really music that would melt on your dashboard <laughs> oh, what a terrible idea <laughs> uh the last one on my list uh there's uh i mean we assume that only our mothers are listening to this but uh <laughs> there were some friends who said they were going to and so some of them are probably going to groan when i say this because they knew that it was coming gun <laughs> A band called Gun, who uh, had the great misfortune of releasing their album uh, when Guns and Roses was extremely hot. <laughs> and so a band coming along called Gun kind of got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. The fact that they sounded nothing like Guns and Roses. Uh, they had a song that got played a lot on an uh, album rock station around here. But I don't know how big it was. Nationally, the song was called Better Days, but I think that most people probably know them for their cover of Cameo's Word Up that has appeared. Excellent. It's, it's in the opening scene, right, for Barbed Wire? Yes. As Pam Anderson is working the pole and the credits are rolling? Absolutely. Great song, great sequence. Great movie. <laughs> I may be the only one who thinks that, but I actually I've do. heard that it's a post-apocalyptic Casablanca. Yes. I didn't That's know what that the marketers until, tell me anyway. <laughs> I didn't so, realize that until after I saw the movie. So the thing about Gun is that they're a Scottish band, and they are one of the best American rock and roll bands I've ever heard. <laughs> and I know that makes no sense, but what I mean is there's really... They're not overtly Scottish to me. I mean, they just sound like a... Just a great, solid rock and roll band. And... Uh, if I had to uh, give an example of well, what their sound is, it's very, very muscular. And it kind of reminds me of A Girl Like You by the Smithereens. That's the album? That's the album. Nick, has just, cool. yeah. Nick has just called it up on his... Uh, Spotify. So Gun, Taking on the World. Very muscular, very guitar-based. Um kind of like 
if U2 never made an album after war, okay, so imagine U2 never made an album after war. They never evolved into all that Brian Eno crap on Unforgettable <laughs> Fire. Okay, they made Boy and they made War and then they were done. And then they had to play bars for the rest of their career. <laughs> That's what Gun sounds like. Uh, and it's just good stuff. Uh, they're they're a little funky, so it it kind of you know the the bass is a little funky, uh, but not not in your face, you know, not not annoying like a lot of those bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers that are like, oh look, we're white guys, but we're funky. <laughs> not like that, not annoying, but the bass player definitely knows his way around the bass, uh, and just a a good good rock and roll album. I think anybody who is a, who grew up. Uh, in the in the eighties or the nineties, okay. Anybody who grew up in the pre-grunge era, <laughs> I think anybody who grew up in the pre-grunge era, who has an appreciation for what was called rock music before grunge, will love Gun. Not love Gun by Kiss. They will love the band <laughs> Gun. That was the first Kiss album I ever had. And I guess I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have to listen to that because I, I I remember listening to that. A long time ago, but I haven't heard it recently. Key tracks on that one would be uh, Better Days, uh, the title track, Taking on the World, um, and uh, Shame on You. Those would be my recommended tracks from that record. All right. Um, My next one is uh, Chris Whitley, Living with the Law. I remember this guy. All right. Uh, I, the first time that I knew about him, <laughs> I was I was an usher at uh, Blossom, the amphitheater. It's and an outdoor shed here in our area. Yeah, great place to see bands. And they, he was playing there, and I think he was opening for somebody. And I was like, God, this guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was really unimpressed with him until he got to uh, his single, which was called uh, Big Sky Country, which I love. Love that song. And I was like, okay. And so I ended up going out and buying the album because of hearing that song, and I ended up loving the album. I think he just, I don't know, maybe the mix sucked or something, but uh, he sounded terrible. Which, the only other band I ever did when I was working as an usher there, uh, I heard one other band that I saw them play live and I thought, wow, they sucked. And I ended up buying the album anyway, which was Ministry, hmm. the album that had uh, Jesus Built My Hot Rod. Mm-hmm. They came out and played live, and it was like, you know, like a bar band version of Guar. I mean, they just sort of had <laughs> weird, dumb shit going all over. I mean, it was just, you know, it was like some dumb spectacle and people on drugs, and it was just awful and they sounded terrible i mean it just it sounded like one bad wrong note was, but somehow again i just i ended up hearing jesus built my hot rod playing on probably mtv or something and i'm like okay i'll buy the album anyway what's funny is don't we have a band here in northeast ohio that is a bar band guar aren't they called mushroom head <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah actually they're they're the barroom slipknot oh is that what it yes. is <laughs> my mistake <laughs> Yeah, and I, I've heard them recently, and they're, uh, yeah, uh, that's some sort of Northeast Ohio thing where, you know, well, we were doing it before they were, but, well, yeah, but Slipknot was the one that became famous, so they get the notoriety, and you get the, uh, 
you know, you get looked upon as being the second band. Yeah. yeah Whitley, <clears throat> he was kind of the critic's darling for a while. Yeah, he's put out a bunch of albums. Well, until he died. <laughs> oh, he died? <laughs> yes, he did. I did not realize that. Now, I, I was thinking about this earlier, and I can't remember. There was another guy uh, called Zachary Barreau, mm-hmm. who was a jazz guitarist. And I can never remember which one it is, but one of them drowned in their own pool trying to save their daughter who was drowning in their pool. And he they, they somehow saved the girl and then hit their head and died. Oh, my God. And it was either Chris Whitley or Zachary Barreau. So Whitley, Whitley has passed away. But he is dead. And it was not of any illicit means. It was, no. Wow. Well, unless, of course, I have it wrong. If he didn't die saving his daughter, then maybe he'd do drugs. Because if he were still alive <laughs> today, he would probably only be in his 50s, I would imagine, right? Oh, uh, yeah. He was young. I mean, he... Because uh, that, that record came out like around 90, 91, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he might not even be in his 50s if he were still alive. Yeah. But he put out, God, like maybe 10 albums. Ten. I did, I was going to say three. Oh, I didn't oh, know he, it was ten. Oh yeah. I mean, because I, I, I knew the first the first handful. Every time he would put a record out, there'd be a big blitz in all the music magazines, and then there'd be you know crickets chirping well, on the radio. This one, "Living with the Law," is definitely he plays a dobro uh, guitar a lot, which is, has that kind of uh, chimey metallic sound to it, but it's you know kind of country esque. But I don't think it's really country album i think maybe at most it would be country rock because yeah. he definitely has a very uh blues rock feel to it but the dobro kind of gives it a slightly country feel he had the very chiseled features he almost looked like oh yeah he looks like he could be a you know and he had the uh the greasy dirty blonde straight hair <laughs> that was kind of like shoulder length yep yep and i i always wondered you know like if he did have some type of a, a drug problem, because his next album where he tries to do an electric, well, I shouldn't say tries, he does a very excellent, you know, uh, electric guitar, Hendrix-influenced album. I mean, just goes completely left of center from where uh, Living With The Law is, which I think it might actually be a better album. But uh, he did kind of like to change his style up, where, you know, this is a new album, I'll take it in a new direction. And I, I think that's, you know, but it's all catchy, uh, melodic, blues-based rock. No matter where he goes, he may take a different take on that. Maybe one's a little more bluegrass, one's a little more country, one's a little more Hendrix influence. But he always did something that was worth listening to. I was going to pull up his story, and yeah, the last one was two thousand six. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, they have six listed, but I know he had a couple of uh, live albums that I don't see listed on here also. so I was thinking, you know, if this show had a budget, what we need is we need, like, that geek they've got on PTI that uh, keeps, like, a running tally of factual mistakes or, like, can look up information. <laughs> It'd be nice if we had, like, a little monkey boy yes. that could maybe look up Wikipedia and see, see which artist, which artist, <laughs> you know, cracked his head open trying to save his daughter and died. <laughs> And could, you know, check out how many albums Chris Whitley put out and all yes. that kind of stuff. Yes, we'll have to hire an intern. I remember this just literally flashed into my mind. You were so into Chris Whitley. I actually wrote some lyrics back then called Chris Whitley on Grant Street. I'll have to look those up. Hmm, I wonder what that sounds like. I, I have no idea what it was about. <laughs> no. Grant Street was near where we lived back in that day for anyone who cares. <laughs> So we milked this topic. We've got to be over an hour now. 
Uh, yep, just a little over hour ten. All right, so maybe we wrap this one up then. Yeah, I think that sounds good. So I'm sure the kinks will get uh, worked out, and we'll eventually get the Max Weinberg seven on here <laughs> to play us out and uh, all that stuff. So really, the uh, okay, so. We've got blogs. blogs and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. We've got a Facebook page. So the blog is mr80s.wordpress.com, but I have to spell that for you because some D-bag got it the short way. So it's m-i-s-t-e-r-8-0-s.wordpress.com. So mr80s.wordpress.com. You can also check out our Facebook page. Just search M-I-S-T-E-R space 80S, Mr. 80s, and we should be the first page that comes up. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to send us a comment, you can contact us by email at Mr. 80s, M-I-S-T-E-R 80S, Mr. 80s at rocketmail.com. Rocketmail. And good night, Charles Napier, wherever you are. <laughs>